Hi, and welcome to the Vocational Education Podcast. Well, hi, my name's Dan Hill, and this is episode number one. What we're covering today is a brief introduction to this podcast and why it's come about, and uh, to give you an insight of some of the things that we're going to be covering in the weeks ahead. Now, we'll have guests on the show regularly, including uh, regular contributors Lee Perlitz and Terry Hill, two of my co-authors for Vocational Training and Assessment, um, the McGraw-Hill text that we released in 2010. Now, uh, on top of that, of course, we'll be covering topical issues uh, coming up in the weeks ahead. Uh, we're going through the new Avetmis 7.0. We're covering some of the ASQA standards. We're going to have a good chat uh, with some very prominent figures from government, including some from the Department of Education in Queensland and uh, ASQA itself. We want this to be lighthearted. We want your input. It's no good having a podcast where people are just talking at you. So there'll be some discussion and there'll be opportunities for you to contribute. This is a very large community here in Australia. And just judging by some of the LinkedIn groups that uh, I'm a part of and, and I can see out there, there's a lot of opinion and there's a lot of professionalism out there. We want to try and encapsulate that in a weekly half hour podcast for you to listen to at your leisure, maybe to and from work or going for a walk with the dog or however you like to get some peace time and a bit of me time. Of course, we'll also cover some fun facts in training and delivery tips, as well as uh, you know things like how to conduct assessments, uh, what tips and tricks we might have, and some that our viewers or listeners might also have. So with that on the plate and with some fantastic things to look forward to, I hope you subscribe to this podcast. There'll be lots of discussion and lots of individual input. Look, just before we get going, uh, here's some interesting information for you. This is the sort of thing that we want to be talking about with you in this podcast. The latest job market survey for vocational training salaries. Here it is. The average salary in September 2012 was $67,500 a year. Now, that's a drop of $461 a year from the beginning of the year. Now, whilst that doesn't sound much, uh, it's interesting to hear that the job, uh, sorry, that the average is falling as well. The average minimum is $61,600, which is a $14 or almost $1,500 a year drop. And the average maximum has gone up by $555 to $73,391. So as an average, we see the uh, market down for training salaries by 0.68%. Now, what do you make of that? Are we really paying trainers less? Uh, or is the job market skewing because of the, um, you know, the slowdown in the mining boom, shall we say, which did uh, artificially inflate a lot of the high-risk training jobs? Anyway, it's food for thought, and one of the things, one of the topics we're probably going to cover in the future. Now, moving on, here's something you may have heard recently. Last night, 7.30 reported allegations that apprentices are being ripped off by privately run training schemes that have moved in on a market once dominated by traditional TAFE colleges. 
As a result of that story, there's now an investigation underway and 7.30 has received dozens of emails suggesting dodgy training schemes are rife across the country. This has uh, prompted a lot of discussion, especially on the discussion boards on LinkedIn and other groups. Now, uh, there are dodgy operators, we all know that. This is going to be another thing we're going to cover in the weeks ahead. Uh, we're going to be talking to operators across uh, some of the states, and we want to get your input as well. So again, if you've come across uh, anybody who might be operating in a, uh, a less than satisfactory manner, we would like to hear about it. And more importantly, uh, we'd like some good news stories as well, because... You know, trainers get a beating around the head quite often for the results uh, that we see in the in the uh, workplace, and it's not always the trainer's fault. So let's have a look, or the training organisation for that matter, so let's have a look at some of the positives as well. If you've got a good news story about the quality of the training that you've been provided or the, uh, uh, the value for money you may have seen in the past, then we'd like to hear about that as well. Contact details are at the end of this podcast. So let's now move on to our first discussion. Yeah, so we have Lee and Terry here with us, and uh, we're going to talk first of all about um, SNR15, so the National uh, NVR Standards created by ASQA. So what's all, what's that all about? What's ASQA and why have they created it? There's a good question for you. Do you want to go with that, Terry? <laughs> That's just no. No. <laughs> why have they created it? Yeah, fair enough. Well, I, I guess it comes down to the fact that they wanted to have a truly national system. Mm. Um, you know, for all the, the RTOs to actually follow. Because, I mean, we had different rules for different states in some instances, and I think the national uh, vet regulator needed to be introduced. And what they've basically done is they've taken the, the old AQTF standards and conditions and modified them slightly, and that's what the NVR has now become. Yeah, look, I totally agree. That, that, do you think it had to happen? Do you think we had to have nationally regulated vet standards? Uh, yes, I do. I do because, I mean, there were various different, um, you know, states doing things in different ways. And, you know, if you, for example, as a trainer, wanted to move from Queensland down to or across to Western Australia, then you may have been sort of subjected to completely different standards, etc. And it just made the whole thing very, very complicated. And how do you think it affected? Yeah, go on. Well, what we, what we found ourselves was uh, RTOs that were uh, in New South Wales were going through exponentially different uh, approaches to just being audited. Mm. Um, we have friends who, are, yeah, who run true. and manage RTOs in New South Wales and, and the way that they were being audited for compliance was, was just off the charts by comparison. Yeah, completely different to what we're going through up here, wasn't it? Absolutely. And by up here, of course, the listeners, we're talking about Queensland. Um, so what we plan to do is, a part of the first podcast anyway, is go through some of the standards um, uh, in the NVR. Now, these are all available online, of course, but... Um, uh, we, th- we thought we'd start with a, an interesting one, NVR or SNR uh, number 15. Uh, I'll just read that out and then we can discuss a couple of the points. I don't think we'll go into too much detail. We'll bore people stupid, but at least we'll give people an idea of perhaps uh, what they should be looking for in their own RTOs. So the first one is uh, the NVR registered training organization provides quality training and assessment across all of its operations. Now, just on uh, the higher level or the broad level, when we talk about quality training and assessment across operations, what comes to mind first, Terry? I guess when you're dealing with um, multiple training packages, uh, you can you can have organisations that pick up training packages in which they have core competencies. Um, let's just say, uh, for example, very pertinent for Queensland, 
the mining industry, uh, you might have an RTO that's big on RII package uh, materials. And as a side, they might see an opening to deliver a TAE. Um, and I think the idea of this is to make sure that they then have equivalent, uh, the, uh, let's say just trainers as an example, um, materials and everything in place. So when they decide to deliver the TAE, mm. they're not doing it as an aside. It's not just something that happens coincidentally. Yeah. And they have those people who have the qualifications, they have uh, quality assessments in place and so on to, to actually keep that standard. Uh, whereas, you know, they might have mining industry experts. Does that mean that they have trainers, training experts as well? That's a really pertinent thing. Uh, have you seen any examples of that leap where uh, perhaps RTOs have been started for a certain reason, maybe to, to focus on a certain industry, but they've gone to expand their scope and before long we've got trainers training in things that maybe they haven't got that quality or that um, competency experience. level oh, and experience in. Yeah, thanks, yeah, I've Jared. seen lots of instances where that's happened and I, it really is a very bad thing because you're getting sort of training um, that is substandard. But I think the, the, the quality across all of its operations is deeper than just looking at the training packages because you're looking at quality in the administration systems and the record keeping systems and yes. all of those different things as well. In, it's not just in the delivery of the training. Exactly. Inadvertently, you've actually started to, to look at some of these uh, some of the points. So 15.1 actually says that the RTO collects, analyzes and acts on relevant data for continuous improvement in both training and assessment. So collecting, analysing and acting on relevant data, what are they talking about? What are we looking for in an RTO? Well, I think, you know, the obvious thing there are the assessment tools. That is that is the most pertinent thing, I think, to make oh, sure that the, the students all. are sort of assessed properly and that they're assessed adequately. But it also means collecting the right kind of information because very often, you know, an RTO will be government funded and they need to report on um, you know student competencies and completion rates and things like that and the data they have has to be accurate mm. because the reports that come back out of out of um, you know the government like a vetmus for example is only ever going to be as good as the information that the RTO puts in yes yeah and have you heard from um, uh, other industry sources so in your experience have you heard of uh, training organizations who are collecting data or sorry who are not collecting relevant data to then act on it? for their own continuous improvement? And if so, what's the example or, or why not or how not? If I can take that one up, um, having sort of recently worked for one of the government agencies, I can see that um, the reports that are required by some of these places, should I should I actually mention the agency? Well, no. Probably not, no. <laughs> um, so when, you, when you're sort of looking at, uh, at putting out funding contracts, there is a report that you are required to get back from the RTOs. And these reports themselves are sometimes not very specific in terms of what is required. So the RTO themselves might very well be providing the information that that particular body has asked for, but it's not very, very good. Yeah, Terry, is... The collection of this data a burden on RTOs, or is it just something that should be done for their own continuous improvement? I think it becomes a burden if they don't collect it at at the point of contact. No, um, yeah, yeah. And and we've seen that before. Um, and Lee, I know you've been exposed to it. I've been exposed to it working uh, for other RTOs uh, over the years. That that uh, if it's collected up front, if they do it correctly, if they have those again those quality systems in place mm. because they know what they need to collect, they collect it at the point of enrolment. Mm -hmm. Uh, they, 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 they process it at the point where the course actually starts uh, and they complete it as part of the processes that the trainer, assessor, whoever it might be, or the course manager for that particular uh, training course 
um, as part of their, their processes. If they complete it at that time, it's not so difficult. It's when they're playing catch up because they realize they haven't been getting the correct data that things go pear-shaped. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we've seen that time and time again. Um, 15.2 will carry on. Says strategies for training and assessment meet the requirements of the relevant training package or accredited course and have been developed through effective consultation with industry. Mm, big right. one. Mm. <laughs> now, this is a bugbear. Yeah, well, absolutely. So tell us about that. What, um, what are some of the things that you've seen are lacking and how can RTOs do this? I think it comes down to the fact that a lot of RTOs don't really have a relationship with industry. Um, and, you know, this is something that they really need to address. And it comes also down to the point that a lot of the time people from industry really haven't got the time to spend doing this kind of thing. Because if you're going to do moderation and validation properly, it means they need to give up some of their time to actually look at the assessment strategies, to look at the training, uh, training and assessment tools, and to actually go over them and give their opinions. Now, who's got that sort of time? So when we're talking about industry, are we talking about industry skills councils and their representatives, or are we talking about our clients? I, t I think we were talking about clients. Yeah. Because if I'm going to be running, say, a, a, a business course, then I will want someone who is in business, whether it's an insurance company or a lawyer or whatever, mm. I would want them to look at this and say, yes, this is something that I believe, um, you know, a student could come out of this and hit the ground running. So this, this actually touches on what Terry said before about RTOs who expand their scope um, just for the sake of expanding their scope, let's say, uh, and then don't engage industry. So let's, you mentioned the TAE training packages as a lot of RTOs sort of tack that on the back because they realise that their trainers need to be trained. Um, and, and we see that a lot of RTOs offering that, over 700 RTOs around the country offer that. Now, um, what's the industry contact or what's the, the industry feedback that they should be getting for the TAE training package? I'd say, well, particularly, they, they need to, to have that process in place internally where they can... Uh, uh, have a look at the way their, their trainers are, are working, uh, perhaps uh, establish some relationships with other RTOs, oh, good. Yeah. get RTOs yeah. from other... Uh, it's, it comes down to professional networks, really. Mm. I mean, um, part, part of the, the, the requirement uh, for, for trainers these days is that you are to engage in professional networks. Mm. These networks are an ideal place, whether they're professional associations, like, uh, as we're familiar with, AITD, VELG, any of those groups, or they're just simply local area partnerships, like you might have the, uh, um, I think there's like the Hunter, the, yeah, the, Hunt, yeah. the Hunter Trainers Group and things like oh, that, the Hunter yeah, Valley, yeah. things like that, yeah. where, where they get together uh, and, and they can get people in from those other, uh, other training organisations to, uh, I suppose, critique their performances. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's really the only way they can benchmark themselves. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of these places where they have single, single trainers working in these, in these areas, um, really, it comes down to self-assessment, and, and you, you get a bit of bit of student feedback. And as we all know, student feedback depends on how quickly they get out of there, which mm. uh, might not necessarily give them the skills that the, the training package intended. Yeah. Uh, they're happy if they get if they get some free bickies at morning tea and, and get out with a stamp on on their ticket. Mm. Uh, if it wasn't for that, they wouldn't have the rise of these places that that basically just you know you come in, you get stamped off, and away you go. As long as you pay your money. So how about RTOs that concentrate solely on e-learning or, or distance learning? Um, have you had any experience with those, firstly? And number two is, uh, is how have you seen those organisations connecting with industry? 
I, I haven't personally had a lot of experience in delivering e-learning, um, I must admit that. But I, I do think that there is a little bit lacking in that. I mean, there, there's a long way to go yet before e-learning becomes the norm, I think, because there isn't much in the way of uh, industry interaction there. And yeah. there isn't much in the way of trainer-student interaction there either at this point. Yeah, I, I agree with Lee. Um, from a commercial standpoint, so, so your uh, public courses, uh, however, the, uh, a lot of the enterprise-based um, e-learning is, is quite well developed. Um, Dan and I both have experience with, mm-hmm. with some, of the, uh, uh, some of the companies that use fairly well-developed e-learning. Um, we've got experience with places like Defence. Department of Defence has its big online e-learning system called Campus, uh, as does much of the public service. Um, and, and those things are quite mature. Um, however, uh, it's a good question by Dan. How do, how do we uh, ensure that quality of delivery and what have you through, through that? Um, yeah, how does it meet the trading package requirements? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's got to be something that's developed right from the start. Um, I've been uh, looking currently. I know that IBSA has quite a lot of stuff online that they've developed, e-learning tools, e-learning packages for uh, for units, uh, which um, RTOs can purchase from from them. Uh, and there are also quite a few companies now that are starting up their own standalone servers. That training companies that want to deliver. Uh, let's just say a, a frontline management course. They can then piggyback off these these um, training. So the existing tools that are yeah, out there? yeah, basically the ones they've already got developed sure. and and, yeah. and and pay on a on a per student basis. Then then that sort of takes the requirement away for compliance a little bit from the RTO. So it's out of their hands a little bit, and and the content developer, which is the software company or the the provider, then has to bear that responsibility. Mm-hmm. And. But- Oh, go on, yeah. the, the, the issue there is, though, that a lot of the times when you look at the units of competency, there's a requirement there for the training to take place in the workplace so that, you know, work skills can be properly observed. So how does e-learning work with that is the question. Yeah, is it actually being customised or contextualised? Yeah. Mm. That is something to have a think about, and I, I think we'll uh, save that whole conversation for another day because <laughs> that, that, that is a great topic, contextualisation yeah. in general. Uh, 15.3, so we're back to the SNR, 15.3, it's a long one. It says, staff, facilities, equipment and training and assessment materials used by the NVR registered training organisation are consistent with the requirements of the training package or accredited course and the registered training organisation's own training and assessment strategies are developed through effective consultation with industry. So it's much the same as the previous one, saying rather than strategies and training are in place, it's saying that they're developed in uh, collaboration mm. with the RTO's own uh, systems and or strategies and, yeah. uh, and industry. So is there anything we can add I think on what one we of talked the, about before? Yeah, I think that uh, one of the salient the points in that particular sentence is the word resources as well. Sort of going back to when I was working for that uh, that industry body, mm. uh, one of the jobs that I had there was actually looking at um, user choice applications because oh, wow. we would then have to sort of send out the letters of support and so on and so forth. And one of the things that I noticed with a lot of the training and assessment strategies that came through was the fact that the RTOs didn't really fully explain or understand the nature of resources. and what they actually entailed. And I I think they don't really look at the training package in terms of what's written in the assessment guidelines to see see what those uh, uh, resources are. Mm. There was an application that came in, for example, for a a letter of support for a hospitality course. And the resources that this person put into their training and assessment strategy were whiteboards, computers, (laughs) pens and pencils. Yeah, which are the... 
Yeah, okay, so they're delivery resources, they're not the training resources. Exactly, and okay. that's exactly what's meant there. So I think that's something that RTOs need to look at mm. and actually address very, very clearly in their training and assessment strategies. Very much so. Now, this is my favourite one in the entire SNR standards. <laughs> it is the training and assessment uh, is delivered by trainers and assessors who... And then you've got yes. the four A, B, C, D. Yeah. So these are the, um, uh, in the AQTF, these were the ones that were bandied around all the time, especially during audit time, yep. uh, to make sure that trainers have the necessary competencies. Uh, they are um, assessing to the level they can demonstrate competency for. Uh, they can demonstrate current industry skills as well as training skills and continue to develop their vocational education and training knowledge uh, in line with their currency and industry. Mm -hmm. hmm. Wow. Again, it comes down, I think, very much to a time factor. A lot of the, the time, uh, you know, trainers are still contract trainers. They get paid by the hour and they simply don't have time or they say they don't have time, unfortunately, to participate too much in the way of um, PD activities. So, Terry, I'll ask this one to Terry. Does this have an effect, do you think, on the difference between a contract trainer and someone who's employed full-time as a trainer only? Absolutely. Absolutely. The burden, the burden on uh, even a full-time trainer is quite significant uh, to, to, to manage their own, uh, or with the assistance of the RTO, to, to manage their, their PD in, in both the training and assessment field and in their uh, chosen industry. Mm. Uh, can be quite extensive. Um, we're all familiar with things like uh, communities of practice sessions and so on. Um, uh, there are there are contractors out there that we know of that that are actually only being paid to deliver training on on you know three or four days a month, uh, and yet they're required to to spend literally hours every month uh, at at these development sessions. As I'm just going off off. Uh, D there, which is uh, talking about the, the professional development side of things. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, 15.4D. But um, where that can be, where, where time can be allowed when you're on the payroll as a, as a full-time trainer, no problem. But just makes it very difficult because the industry does rely so heavily on contract trainers. Now, I've seen a, a, a happy example of that with one of the energy companies. They have internal trainers, as you'd imagine, all very competent in their areas. Uh, but they're experienced, and so they've gone through the training and development um, side of, the, of, um, of being a trainer. But they still have to go out to the field and do their regular good old job for two weeks a year. Mm. I think that's, I mean, that's one way of doing it. Um, can you think of any others that you might well, be able to for a full-time trainer anyway? I think there, in again, lies a problem in that's fine if it's an internal trainer within an, uh, an actual organisation. Yeah. But if you're working for an RTO, it's very difficult. Unless you have really, really good relationships with industry, how are you actually going to do that? Yeah. Yeah, you know, without that's the big an, question. an extensive cost to the RTO yeah. to send away a trainer for a week here or a week there to go out and do the job that they're meant to do. So think of all the trade trainers there are out there working through TAFE. Yep, and then you've also got that really, really huge issue that keeps coming up every time you try and set foot inside someone else's business, and that's the issue of insurance. <laughs> that's a great one. <laughs> I'm, I'm loving these because these, these are all great topics we can yeah. pencil down for later. Uh, yeah, insurance is a bugbear. Again, yeah. I love that word, and it's, um, it's there. Um, okay, let's go into the last one, 15.5, assessment including recognition of prior learning. A, meets the requirements of the relative training package. Uh, B, is conducted in accordance with the principles of assessment and rules of evidence. And C, w uh, meets workplace and relevant industry regulatory requirements. And last but not least, is systematically validated. So assessment including RPL. Mm. 
What, what's the main takeaway from 15.5, do you think? What's the main thing that RTO should concentrate on there? I, I think having assessment tools, leaving RPL aside for the moment, because that in itself is a really big subject anyway, <laughs> yes, um, right. is, is having assessment tools that actually measure up to the criteria. And, you know, again, there, there is a problem in benchmarking here because mm. the auditors, and I'm going to be very unpopular for saying this, but the, you know, the auditors expect RTOs to follow the benchmarks and to have all of the criteria down pat. But until the auditors themselves mm. have a benchmark to go by. Interesting point, because isn't that one of the mandates of ASCOROS to come up with a, um, an auditor benchmark? So long as they do actually do it, because I, I've, I've sat in on numerous um, audits in, um, in my history and where one auditor might like an assessment tool and think, yes, this is absolutely perfect. Mm. The next one will come along and go, no, this is rubbish. It's not compliant. Yeah. So until that has been sorted out, I don't know what an audit ready or a compliant assessment tool actually looks like. <laughs> we like to think we do. Yeah. Now, speaking of that, is it worth, do you think, for RTOs to download that, uh, you know, the, the auditor's checklist? Do you think it's worth them downloading that? Because that uh, goes beyond just the SNR uh, points. It actually tells you what they're looking for individually. Is it worth an RTO going to that level? I honestly would think they'd be crazy not to, yeah. to be honest, because it does. Uh, the, these are the checklists that the auditors use. Uh, it gives you an insight exactly what they're looking for, um, and as Dan, as you mentioned, they, they have they have uh, examples, so um, you can use that if you ha you know prior to an audit. If you don't have those things in place, you know what what you need to build. It's like getting um, an exam prep sheet, isn't it? It, it is. It's, yeah. it's like having a practice exam from from the previous class to go through, where the similar you know, questions are similar and so on. So um, yeah, I think you'd be crazy not to, to be honest. It's it's such a uh, a handy tool to have. And as part of your as part of your uh, continuous improvement program, you really ought to be doing an internal audit at least once a year, anyway. And that's the tool that you would use to do that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, you can get that, of course, from which website? The ASQA website. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Okay. Now, if you're um, if you're not working under ASQA, and I believe there's still some pockets of this of Australia who are not working under ASQA. Um, all these things we've been talking about still apply to the AQTF. Mm. Uh, and there are quite a number of organisations still working under that. Um, and of all the SNR standards, this one is almost word for word from, uh, from the AQTF anyway. Um, so this is for the standards for uh, continual registration, of course, but uh, initial registration is no different in this particular case. Yeah. All right, well, thank you very much, Lee and Terry, for joining me for that conversation. Definitely a lot of doors open there, and I like that because it gives us somewhere to go as well. Now, for listeners, uh, they can pitch in as well. They can add comments to our Facebook page. We can bring them up in future podcasts. Uh, and if you don't agree with something we said, great. Please send in your points. Um, we'll discuss them openly. Uh, in fact, that's the whole point of this thing. The more we can get out there, uh, the more we can learn as an industry. So again, thank you very much, Terry and Lee. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. The Vocational Education Podcast is made possible by your contributions. You can comment on any of those issues raised in this podcast or raise one for a future podcast by visiting our Facebook page. Just search for Vocational Education Podcast and leave us a comment. The music we use on this podcast is kindly made available by Dano at danosongs.com.